Happy Festivus and welcome to this very special edition of the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, on this, our last program of 2021. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, in celebration of Festivus, Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies on his annual airing of grievances as he spells out the bad national security ideas of the year. But first, my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, with a look back at the year and what to expect in 2021. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be here, Bago. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Terrific having you on the last program of the year. You've been kind enough on most weeks to join us for to tell our audience what to look for in the week ahead and what's on your mind. What were the most important stories in 2021 for you, and what do they tell us about what to expect in the coming year? Okay, in rough order, Vago, I think you know, the most important story was what happened on January 6th. And really, you know, the fact that we had the first non-peaceful transfer executive power in the United States, what that forebodes for the 2022 midterms and the 2024 election is still to be determined. But um, it's a real wrinkle in, you know, how I think the U.S. internal security will play out and how the U.S. is going to be viewed internationally. So, I, I think that that is the most important security development uh, in, in the 2022 time. And it's the most important security development in 2021, and it has ramifications for 2022 and beyond. And you're one of the people who think that, right, I mean, the, the concern in the department and elsewhere was that it was a bit of a dry run for what to expect. Obviously, uh, former President Trump is working very hard uh, to uh, support the election of people who will maybe have a different approach, maybe have a less uh, conservative approach uh, to voting and how to change electoral results. I mean, is that more broadly part of your concern as well? Absolutely. You know, that that you'll see a real constitutional crisis. It, it may be at the state levels in, in 2022, depending on what happens in some of the Senate and House races. But, you know, what's going on at state, the state election processes, I, I really find it, it, it's radically different. And um, <clears throat> I just think it has the potential to really crack open um, this country in a way that that we haven't seen since, you know, literally the 1850s. Um, let me take you to more classical defense. What were the more classical defense uh, needle movers for you over the course of the year and ones in particular you think? I mean, right, I mean, Russia, Ukraine would be uh, Russia, one, of the, yeah, one of the biggest ones, right? But yeah, Absolutely the most topical right now. <clears throat> and I think, you know, playing into 2022, that's going to be a major watch item. <clears throat> Iran. And uh, the negotiations over JCPA don't appear to be going well. So that's going to be another major security issue that will bleed into, uh, into 2022. And I put in that the outcome of the Iranian elections in June of 2021, not that I think the surprise was an outcome, but you, know, you have a hardline government in place. And the return of COVID uh, you know, in, in a new variant and what that does to global 
<clears throat> security and instability is another security related factor that I think is important. Afghanistan <clears throat> and, you know, the, the nature of the U.S. withdrawal, both, you know, and how it was handled, but then how many people were actually evac evacuated is a double-edged sword, I think. Um, you know, I think you're looking at a pretty significant humanitarian catastrophe in, in Afghanistan this winter. And, you know, it does, again, raise the possibility that that country will be a source of uh, future instability. Um, you know, on a more kind of U.S. level, uh, the fact that Congress so far has shown broad bipartisan support for a $25 billion increase on top of what the administration asked, it, it remains to be seen if that's really going to be flowed through in appropriations in 2022. But, um, you know, the talk of 10% budget cuts, I think, has kind of been put to the side. And again, I think what's noteworthy is, is the bipartisan support of uh, the, the votes that have taken place on the National Defense Authorization Act in the House and the Senate. Um, drilling down, oh, I, I put in the Australia, UK, US deal, although I, I think the timing of that is, is kind of, you know, molasses running uphill slow. Um, <clears throat> for on a, what's on a cold day. <laughs> on a cold day. Um, you know, I, I think that's that was a pretty intriguing and significant development. I think just what it says about Australia, Indo-Pacific, and um, and the, the changing environment there. Um, I'd add, I guess the two others that I would add, I think it's been a good year for the F-35. Uh, if you think about their wins on the competitions, both in Finland and Switzerland, I don't think they were you know, a year ago, if you'd asked me if they do a, a sweep of those two competitions, I would have said no, probably not. And then, of course, the, the UAE deal with uh, Dassault Rafale, you know, that gives legs to the production line for that program. And I suppose the final thing, well, two final things, you know, it's still been a very slow pace on Senate confirmations. I haven't looked today uh, off the top of my head, though. You know, the 61 or 62 Senate confirmed positions for DOD, I think only 22 or 23 have actually been confirmed. There's still a backlog of people who um, have had their, their Senate Armed Services Committee hearings, but are awaiting a Senate vote. And, you know, that, that's something that I think will bleed into uh, 2022. Hopefully it'll get done in time for the FY24 palm drill, the budget drill that'll take place in the Department of Defense. And the final thing that I think is important for people to keep in mind is <clears throat> this is shaping up to be the second year in a row that U.S. defense stocks have underperformed broad market indices. And you saw some real um, negative performance in some of the smaller companies, Aerovironment, Mercury, um, Kratos, <clears throat> you know, that arguably would be you know, they've kind of been considered the higher growth names, but there was kind of a recent in expectations uh, for defense um, growth in 2021. How that plays through in 2022, you know, are there geopolitical environments to reverse that? Um, what are the companies doing? How, they, how do they behave? Um, there could be more and more pressure <clears throat> if stocks lag. And I think, you know, some of the old standby tricks is like, well, we're just going to generate free cash flow and buy back stock. It just, it didn't get much traction as far as shareholders were concerned. So um, I think another interesting watch issue for 2022 that was set up by 2021 was this yet, you know, an, another year of stock underperformance and the kind of pressure 
that that may place on managements to do something. Just to uh, shift back, right? I mean, you talked about the slow rate of, of, of filling some of these jobs. Were you surprised at how slowly an administration that was seen as adult and experienced has moved uh, and how many of these jobs are still open? I mean, does that surprise? I, I mean, I have to say I'm completely stunned. I had hoped uh, and expected that given the breadth of talent that existed, how slowly this process has moved. I would agree with that, Fogel. I mean, you're right. I would have thought, you know, this was a, there was kind of a, you know, DOD in waiting in a lot of the think tanks. And you saw, you know, frankly, a lot of the think tank, uh, think tanks did provide people, um, CSIS, uh, Center for New America Security, to, to name but two. Um, you know, the, the senior positions, I think, got filled relatively quickly. It's that assistant secretary of defense level where there's still a lot of holes. And, you know, okay, I can understand uh, the undersecretary of defense for acquisition and sustainment because um, Mike Brown had dropped out. But, you know, that that's a pretty important position. And it took a while for that to be filled. Um, and we still, you know, we've not had a, a confirmation hearing on, the, on that position yet. So um, it's, it's, it is interesting. Hopefully it gets rectified. I've seen data that actually, from a broad perspective, <clears throat> the Biden administration had been kind of keeping pace with the Trump administration in terms of um, announcing um, people for Senate confirmed positions. But I think some of the holds that were placed on um, particularly state and, and some of the DOD people also has been a major factor. Those were holds by um, by uh, Senator Cruz and, and Senator Hawley. So that, that's been another factor um, that, that kind of gummed this up a bit as well. And it, it could have, it's hard to say what the security ramifications are, but I'd hope people would look at maybe reforming that process to get these confirmations done faster than, um, you know, what's been kind of an ahistorically low rate over not just this administration, but the Trump administration too. At the end of the day, the, the more talent you have in more jobs, uh, the better off you are, especially at a time when you're going to be rolling out a national defense strategy, a national security strategy, an Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, and you know nuclear posture review. Uh, very, very quickly, do you have high expectations for these strategies or um, do uh, you mirror the sort of folks are concerned that there are all going to be relatively lackluster documents, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the global posture statement was kind of the bell <clears throat> that rang on that subject, um, which is, yeah, I, I don't have major expectations. I would think that Afghanistan and what happened there <clears throat> would have introduced um, a, a slightly different element. I think, you know, what's going to be fascinating, you know, if, if national defense strategy is dropped, um, in the midst of major Russian military action in Ukraine, you know, or on the eve of that, it, it could have the same impact that the 9-11 attacks did on the, um, the strategy review that was conducted, you know, literally, I think there was a rewrite on the preamble to that right. uh, to, to reflect what's a very different security contingency. So, um, yeah, uh, but I don't have, I, I these are, you know, what the, or a camel is a horse built by a committee. <laughs> I'm sure a camel would uh, disagree yeah. uh, disagree on that, but it's a, it is a great line. And just in about 10 seconds, I know you're not a betting man, 
does Russia go into Ukraine by the time we record again? Well, they're already in Ukraine. Well, fair enough. Right. About 57, 58,000 troops are in Donbass uh, and there are tens of thousands on the border. And and obviously, you know, Putin has made his demands and Blinken uh, at the time that we record this is still talking about the importance of talking. Uh, you know, I wrote earlier this week, I think there's a 40 percent probability that you would see major conventional military action by Russia and Ukraine in 2022. And if I were to refine that further, I'd say that would involve at least half of the battalion tactical groups that Russia's arrayed in and around Ukraine. It would involve air and, and missile assets. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I'm not quite sure of the timing of that, but, you know, weather is going to be a factor in these. And um, but, I, but the demands that Russia has made recently are you know, they're not going to be easily resolved or rectified. And I just don't see the West willing to accept some of the conditions that Putin has laid down. So yes, I think my bias, I wanted to see what um, Putin says in his December 23rd annual press briefing. My bias is to the upside on the, the risk of that probability of, of major, a major conventional operation, probably in Eastern Ukraine. I don't think Russia is going to be able to, you know, take all of Ukraine, but <clears throat> the, the buildup has certainly caught people's attention. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Happy Festivus. Merry Christmas. Uh, and hope you and yours have a very happy new year and look forward to uh, having you back on the program again. And thanks again so very much for spending so much time uh, with us over the course of this year. It's an honor and pleasure. Great. And thanks to you and all of your listeners. The same, Baga. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us for what has become a Festivus holiday tradition, Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, joins us today to discuss his bad ideas of 2021. Sadly, because of COVID, we won't be enjoying Festivus dinner or feats of strength but we can partake in the airing of grievances and the celebration of Festivus miracles. Todd, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks, Vago. Always glad to come on and air some grievances. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you know, you've got your aluminum pole out. I, I have mine. Uh, yes. even, even as we get ready to uh, celebrate uh, Christmas here. But today is, in fact, Festivus. Uh, the timing could not be better. Uh and it was the biggest ever year for your bad ideas series, right? Uh, they and they keep pouring out, right? I mean, uh, you just yeah. uh, aired your grievances, I think, uh, last week or or this week, right? This week. Um, what are your best bad ideas of 2021? Well, you know, I wish I could claim credit for them all, uh, but it is a group effort. We put out the call <laughs> early on for folks, not just at CSIS, but other think tanks, academic institutions. Give us your bad ideas. Let's put them out there uh, in a joyous celebration of Festivus. Uh, I, there are a lot of great ones that people came in with. Uh, I, I will hold off on getting to my own bad idea that I, that I wrote. Uh, but I would say one of the most popular ones uh, that we've published so far is by our good friend Tom Spore at Heritage. Uh, and his bad idea is relying on integrated deterrence instead of building sufficient U.S. military power. So he is taking on one of the biggest buzzwords in the Pentagon today, integrated deterrence. How do you feel about that, Vago? 
Um, well, so I'm going to have to uh, write. I mean, as always is the case, I would love to go along with bad ideas, but I think you know me well enough to know that I'm not necessarily a go along <laughs> guy, uh, even though I think Lieutenant General's uh, spore uh, does add uh, to uh, the richness of uh, defense intellectual the uh, thinking uh, here in, in Washington. So why is that necessarily a bad idea, right? I mean, uh, Deputy Defense Secretary Kath Hicks, your former colleague, Dr. Hicks, uh, has made a, a rather compelling case about the nuance of deterrence and how if we get this right and we do this um, you know, sort of across the board, not just the military elements of it, but the economic, diplomatic, uh, as, as well as uh, political and messaging, we're all the more powerful for it. Why is that uh, a bad idea? And I, I don't think Tom disagrees with that. Uh, I think his disagreement is relying on, you know, this this re reinvented concept of deterrence uh, instead of just building military power. Right. That the ultimately the way you deter uh, is by having a credible deterrent is being able to you know deny or punish an adversary. And so I think he's making a point here that you can't just rely uh, on, you know, some new concept or re, you know, uh, reinvented concept of deterrence uh, that you actually have to invest in military power. So that's, I think that's what he is cautioning against. You know, I actually have a question of, did we ever have disintegrated deterrence or disaggregated deterrence? I, I don't understand what the word integrated adds to it because I thought it was always integrated. Um, although, although I think the argument can be made, right, that we um, have had a tendency of sort of putting uh, more focus on hard power, uh, right, as, as opposed to uh, try to more deftly use some of the, the other tools, right? But, but smart power is another way of looking at it, um, uh, you know, ultimately. And I, and I, and I do take Tom's uh, point, right? Um, and at this, at some point, you do need to have capability uh, that then serves as a clear deterrent for your adversaries, right? I mean, uh, yeah. they'll get up to mischief if they don't take seriously that you have not just the right capabilities, right? But I mean, more so with the Chinese, whether we have it in the volume necessary to deter them from doing something that they and we will ultimately regret, right? I, I you're absolutely, I, yeah, I can't disagree with that, but I'll tell you. That was a very popular one when we published it. Uh, so I think a lot of people are sympathetic to Tom's argument here. But, but let there, me try but, on. But there are so many one. more, Todd, right? There are so many <laughs> there more. There are. So, so another highly popular one uh, by our good friend, Hallie Cohn uh, over at AEI. Uh, her bad idea is divest to invest. Uh, she is calling out this notion that we have to uh, reduce force structure. We have to cut legacy platforms, planes, ships, you name it, uh, and in order to invest in new capabilities. And of course, you know, I hear this from, uh, I hear the same argument from a lot of folks, uh, various organizations around town. And, and they're worried about, you know, the idea that if we downsize now with the promise of modernizing and replacing those platforms in the future, that really we're just going to permanently downsize. So what, what right. are your thoughts on this? We're doing this the wrong way, right? I mean, whether it's uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, uh, or the United States Air Force that you and I have discussed over a long period of time, shout out to General Dave Deptula, uh, who's always highlighted this, um, right? We cut capability in order to free investment to get new capability. And, and ultimately, more often than not, the money just sort of 
goes away. So you just lose the platforms entirely. Yeah. Uh, even if Secretary Kendall Wright is making a compelling case, let me retire some of these old uh, capabilities. Right? I mean, we, we saw in the NDAA, Todd, right? The $25 billion did not necessarily go for new capability, but keeping around a lot of stuff that maybe we should retire. Um, isn't there a different way of doing this ultimately, right? I mean, why not disinvest to invest? Why not be just more intellectually honest about that as opposed to assailing the notion? The notion is a great notion. It's just we don't really practice it, do we? Is that is that more uh, the indictment? I think, yes. I think that's the, that's you know the indictment here. Now, I'll have to tell you personally, I think that there are a lot of areas I would like to divest in. Um, and I, you know, it's not even a matter of, you know, coming up with the funding to invest in new capabilities. I think that we have to divest in order to just maintain the other things we have that are more important. Uh, and so I, I would be taking a really hard look at the army and parts of the army force structure that are not as relevant and not as, as necessary to keep in the active component anymore. Um, so that's my view on it, but, but let me move on. There are many Please. others, many others. Please. Um, so uh, another one, uh, I thought a uh, really great contribution here by CSIS's own McKenna Young. Her bad idea is stalling the funding for Department of Commerce's takeover of space situational awareness. I don't know if you've been following this issue, Vago. Have, have, have you followed this much at all? Uh, in, I, I, I have a bit, but why don't you, as the space <laughs> guru in this conversation, Todd, take it away at this point? Well, you know, for ages, since the beginning of the space age, uh, the US military, the Air Force, and now the Space Force uh, have basically kept the, the catalog of all the items uh, in space that we can track, where they are, where they're going to be, uh, and has published uh, the unclassified set of that data online. You can go find it at spacetrack.org right now. Uh, and, and DOD has done what they call conjunction warning. So warning everyone in the world who operates satellites when they might have a potential collision with some other object in space. Uh, and the Trump administration, they came out with Space Policy Directive 3 and said, you know what, that's not a military function doing all of that coordination and warning around the world for everyone. Let's move that to the Department of Commerce uh, and have them do it. Uh, the problem is that in the years since that you know, decision was made, uh, Congress has not followed up with funding so that the Department of Commerce can actually stand up the capability of personnel to start taking over this function. The Space Force would gladly uh, give them that function and take that off their plate so they can focus on military missions, but Congress has got to give the funding. Uh, and right. so I really, I strongly agree with what McKenna wrote here that it's a terrible idea that that you you know give commerce the responsibility but don't give them the money to actually do what they need to do uh, well and you know ultimately i mean that is a a responsibility and obligation of the space force ultimately right i mean so it it was just you know one of a, a series of just very bad decisions right out of the box uh, even if there may have may have been a, a certain degree of good intent, right? I mean, the road to hell, as yeah. they say, uh, is paved in uh, good intentions. Todd, you too weighed in with a bad idea of your own. I did. And I think I'm going to upset a few people when I say this, but my bad idea that just published on our site uh, is the geographic combatant commands. I think the geographic COCOMs uh, are 
they have outlived their usefulness <laughs> as an organizing construct uh, for how we prepare and how we operate military forces around the world. Uh, you know, uh, several reasons for this. You know, the first reason is the challenges that we face. Uh, you know, don't stay neatly confined to the AR, AORs that we draw on a map. Um, increasingly, we see Russia, China, uh, and even, you know, terrorist threats are global in nature, right? And so, you know, that creates uh, challenges where they go across, this, go across the seams uh, between the combatant commands. And we have to figure out, you know, who is supporting whom with what and who's planning for what and with whom. Uh, and it's just a mess. Now, the other, you know, another reason I think that the geographic COCOMs have outlived uh, their, their need is that they create this excessive demand for routine presence operations. And Bob Work actually just recently uh, wrote a piece about this as well. You know, former Secretary of Defense Mark Esther took a look at this with his zero-based review uh, of the COCOMs because, you know, the demand signal that we're getting out of the COCOMs now is really breaking the force, I think. Uh, and so I think this is one way uh, of, of getting rid of some of that low priority demand uh, that is just not a, you know, a high level strategic priority for the country. Uh, my final reason I'll give you the COCOM, geographic COCOMs are a bad idea, uh, is that they contribute to what some have argued, and I agree, uh, is an over-militarization of U.S. foreign policy. They've got larger staffs. Uh, they have deeper resources, you know, because they can draw from the military services for personnel and equipment. And too often, the primary face that other countries around the world are seeing from the U.S. government is U.S. military through the COCOMs. And so I think we need to put the State Department back in the lead uh, for many of these countries around the world. Uh, and we need to put forward a diplomatic face uh, so what I would do instead of geographic COCOMs, um, I mean, there are many different options. I think a better option than we have right now uh, is to create what I would call operational commands, and they're focused around specific challenges. So I would have one focused on China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and I'd throw in a fifth one there uh, on countering global terrorism. Uh, and so I would go with those five commands. They know what their focus area is, what they need to prepare for. They don't have geographic boundaries. So, you know, the China focused command would look at threats and how to counter China wherever they may need to go. Um, and then, you know, when things come up that you weren't expecting that don't fall into one of those five categories, you create temporary operational commands. Uh, and they'll handle those crises as needed. You know, we probably would have needed one for the COVID response, right? But they wouldn't stay in place in steady state. Uh, so that would be my approach, but I know that there are lots of smart people that, that would have other great ideas to replace the geographic COCOMs as well. I'd love to hear them. So Vago, uh, what do you think? I, uh, I agree with you that I think uh, too often the face is a military face and we do need to have civilians uh, much more, uh, you know, and I think the State Department, the, you know, there is the reason why it is the senior department, right? It is uh, yep. uh, responsible for uh, diplomacy uh, and it has to start at diplomacy, right? I mean, what are, what are the objectives we're trying to achieve and, and, uh, and, and do it from that perspective? Um, I like your notion 
of being able to deal with the China challenge uh, in, a, in a global way as opposed to a regionally confined way uh, or regionally defined way. The, the challenge and problem in all of these, Todd, as you know, is execution, staff growth, lack, lack of focus, yeah. uh, how much duplication is is sufficient, right? Um, but I mean, I think it, it certainly does constitute a a, a more, um, you know, I, I know your intention of, of sort of a, a broader, more strategic way of looking at it. Uh, on the other hand, you know, are, are we likely to change it, how we would change it, right? I mean, we would need a congressional commission, there are, you know, a congressionally <laughs> mandated commission, right? I mean, and it, it would take a long period of time, uh, and potentially cause more disruption as opposed to getting, you know, just just saying like, hey, at this point, it's the US Indo-Pacific Command, uh, and the U.S. European Command that are the commands that need to be in the lead, CENTCOM is is still important. And, and I think we, we have a little bit of a challenge. We were willing to prioritize CENTCOM. It's not abundantly clear to me that we're prioritizing, um, you know, Europe uh, and, and certainly the Indo-Pacific the way that we need to. Let me ask you before we part, right? Uh, we have aired some grievances. It is now important to uh, celebrate some miracles. What falls uh, into the Festivus miracle category for you in 2021 so that we end this on a little bit of a positive note? Uh, you know, as 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 people uh, lock down uh, and and sadly, again, I mean, we know we know people who are unfortunately getting getting mm-hmm. sick with Omicron now as we roll into Christmas. Well, yeah, we, we should be thankful for our Festivus miracles. I think the the most prominent one right now is the fact that Congress actually managed to pass the National Defense Authorization Act before the end of the year. It did not look like uh, it was going well for the NDAA. Uh, one of the most precious resources uh, in America is floor time on the Senate. Uh, and it was not clear that they were going to get that compromise bill back through the Senate, uh, but they did. It's a miracle. A uh, lot of, you know, really interesting you know, provisions in that bill. Um, and it does give me hope uh, for the new year that maybe, maybe within a few months, we might get a defense appropriations bill and actually have a budget for FY22. I, I am hopeful going into the next year. I'm, uh, I am very hopeful and a, and a continuing resolution would be the worst of all uh, possible worlds. And, and you're right, right? In keeping with Festivus, it is a miracle. It's not really all that miraculous, right? I mean, it was better late than never, uh, and and certainly a testament testament to Chairman Reed and and uh, the ranking member uh, Inhofe for uh, getting that done. I mean, it was it was very important to get it done, and I'm very very glad that they did. Well, um, and we ought to be thankful that you know, e- even though times are very contentious, uh, you know, the politics are are not in a good situation in our country. Many defense issues remain bipartisan, and I think the fact that they passed the NDAA uh, as they did uh, on a strongly bipartisan basis, I think that reflects the fact that, you know, when push comes to shove, um, you know, our political system can sometimes do the right thing. Uh, indeed. Uh, Todd, thank you for uh, ending uh, this uh, tough year on a positive note. Um, hope you and yours have a very Merry Christmas, a very Happy New Year. Uh, and I want to wish uh, the very same for our audience who's joined us day in, day out. Everybody's going to get a break. We'll join you again uh, early next year. Todd, thanks so very much again for joining us. Thanks, Vago, and stay safe.
great advice and same to the audience. Hope everybody has a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. Thanks so very much for joining us all year. And our next program will be at the start of the new year. Until then, uh, we hope everybody has a well-deserved break uh, and wishing everybody a happy, healthy, and prosperous holiday season. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.